Hi, Adam. Hi. Good to be here with you. Yeah, it's awesome to be here with you as well. Yeah, here we are in the Pilates Elephant Studio. So, um, you've traipsed all the way across town from the uh, evidence-based Pilates podcast uh, headquarters, and uh, here you are. Traveled a long way, just just a, a couple clicks away. Um, so, we're going to talk today about muscle gripping. I'm gripped by it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this is an interesting topic to me. And uh, I, I, one of the things that you actually suge- you actually suggested this topic. So, um, why don't you go on ahead and and uh, share why you think it's important to talk about? Um, I, I think it's important to talk about um, just just because it's, it's something that I find to be um, a like a mythological belief within a lot some Pilates spaces, uh, meaning that it's it's a thing that is commonly said and there are beliefs generated about it. But if you put the term into Google Scholar, it doesn't it doesn't exist. But I think that we have an idea of. Uh, or we're trying to express something with those words, but those words um, aren't necessarily um, accurate. And I think it could be beneficial to have a conversation about it and see what we what we actually mean and and what our what our what we're trying to get around by having um, that conversation. Yeah, it's it is one of those ones where uh, in in the Pilates world, uh, although as we'll see in a minute. Um, there are many definitions, and I'm not sure if we all agree on on what muscle gripping is. Everybody has heard of it. Everybody has some view on on what it is. But as soon as you go outside of the Pilates world into, say, the exercise science or the exercise physiology world or physiotherapy world, uh, people just look at you funny and go, "Muscle watting? Like I've never heard of it. It's not a you know. It's just not part of their lexicon." Yeah, yeah. I asked people in different realms of healthcare, and no one knew what I was talking about. Um, so, you know, I was just kind of asking just just for fun, and and I put because I mentioned like like nothing comes up in Google Scholar, like you get no results when you when you search the term. So then I went to like the, um, down to Google just to see what comes up, and people and what comes up is like hand gripping, right? And there's a lot of research on grip strength and and like the aging process, and it was legitimate stuff. But then what I then I was like, okay, well, what if I type in the word muscle gripping in Pilates, and then all of a sudden the conversation changed from hand grip to gripping um, specifically the hip flexors, which mm. which kind of comes down to like I clicked on some articles and stuff like that, and in like the the overarching thing was like um, there are like bad muscles and good muscles, and we need to figure out how to turn off the bad ones and turn on the good ones because we're grip the word was gripping as in like. You're activating something that you shouldn't activate, and you need to yeah. learn how to move better. It is so funny, isn't it? That does come back to that idea of good muscles and bad muscles, and we'll get in, in a minute into in a minute we'll get into the you know some of the multiple definitions of the word grip of the concept of gripping, but really it comes down to you know some version of recruiting it you know more than you need to or recruiting it when you shouldn't some combination of those things um and and it really does come down to a double standard because i think it's very common in the pilates world 
for people to be encouraged, or at least in certain corners of the Pilates world, for people to be encouraged to recruit their deep abdominals, say at a low contraction, you know, 25% of maximum volume to contraction I was taught when I was a kid, uh, you know, at all times, you know. And so, okay, so... Take a speed limit. explain to me, how's that different to gripping? Like, what's, why is that not gripping, <laughs> recruiting it at all times? And I think it's really funny how, like, we only do it on muscles that we know about or that we think about, right? Like, no one says, like, grip your flexor digitorum at 25% before you grab something. Or, like, you don't talk about the muscles it takes to talk. Like, talking is a really complex skill. But it's like, but there's something about like certain regions of the body where it's like, these ones are popular. So we're going to talk about them and we need to focus on them. And it's, uh, you know, I would just plant to see that it's possible that we don't need to do that. Yeah. It's even the notion that, um, you know, muscles being on is necessarily a bad thing uh, is, is, is not, I think, as self-evident as it seems at first glance that in... Uh, some areas of physiology like in the bladder the urinary bladder it is a muscle like it's a bag of muscle just like your stomach is a bag of muscle and your intestine is a tube of muscle and it's what's called smooth muscle which means it's not under conscious control but your bladder is essentially always full so even when there's only a tiny bit of urine in there the bladder is still full because the bladder is is shrinks It, it gets small and so regardless of the volume of urine that's in there, the bladder sort of shrinks or expands to, to match that volume. So there's never any air in there, as it were. Um, and the way it does that is by, it's a muscle, right? So it contracts when there's, when there's a, a small volume of urine in the bladder, the muscular bladder itself contracts. And then as the urine volume increases, the bladder uh, progressively relaxes. Um, and so... When you've just gone to the bathroom, your bladder is actually contracting, right? That's its, that's its default state. And it's only uh, precipitated to relax by mechanical tension, you know, pressure on, on, on the muscle, you know, caused by having urine in there. So, like, yeah, you want your bladder to contract by itself, you know, all day, <laughs> except when it's full. So, yeah, just the very notion that muscles should always by default be off is, I think, there's a, you know, it's, it's surprisingly turns out to be not true in a lot of cases. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes it's okay to, like, let go of control and just acknowledge that the body knows what it's doing. And, and, and with that, you know, it, it, it's hard to talk about this without talking about, like, um, like motor learning and, and, how, and how we build strength and, and how conscious contraction is, is not helpful, really, for either one of those. Um, you know, and, and it's one of those things, like if you just load the action of the body, you know, the muscles are going to do what it needs to do. And when we talk about like, um, hip flexors, they're going to activate when you do hip flexion. And then if you relax your hip flexors and hip flexion, you're no longer doing hip flexion. Meaning like if you're on your back and you, and you finally succeed after like, 15 years of Pilates, you learn to turn off your hip flexors, your legs are going to fall to the floor because they're no longer holding your legs against gravity. Um, you know, it's one of those things where when, when we really have an understanding of anatomy and an, and an understanding of physiology, sometimes these like specific ideas that, that we may have been taught in, in, in our previous trainings 
tend to fall apart and, 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 and that's okay. And I, and also anyone listening, like if this is something you've said or something you've done, I've said it like way back when, and you don't ever have to feel like ashamed of, um, of teaching something that you were taught to teach, you know, that, that lies in the, in the educational institution. And then that I would put responsibility there to change how we educate. And so that's where it's, it's really helpful to have to learn anatomy and physiology and motor learning and pain science and biomechanics. And when you understand those things, this idea falls apart really fast. Uh, a common one is like, you need to, you're not engaging your core correctly, Raph. That's why your hip flexors are on. Oh, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're an exercise physiologist. Like, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, well, first thing I want to say is I'm with you, Adam, uh, that there's no shame. If 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 you were out there, dear listener, like just before you turn on this podcast, you were just just finished telling your client to stop gripping their hip flexors. You know, we don't judge because I've probably. I mean, I don't know how long you've been teaching, but chances are I've probably told it to more clients than you have. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we we've definitely uh, definitely guilty as charged. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I think it's probably. Should we start? Well, we should we should we move into just thinking about like what even is gripping? Because I think there's a there are like there are a few perspectives from which the term gripping is just not a useful concept. Um, but the first one is I think it, it doesn't even mean what you think it means, um, which is we all, we've all got different different ideas of, of what it means. So um, yeah, so what what what's your definition of gripping, Adam? Or, or what what do you what do you understand people to mean by it when they when they say it? What I understand people like to mean by gripping, and, and it, well, it kind of well, first of all, it depends on the person you're talking to. Um, but then, some of the definitions that I've heard would be like like holding tension in like an unproductive way, or um, you know, not really like like you're like you're engaging a muscle, but it's not really um, useful in that manner. And it's this idea that like, we need to override our automatic movement processes with conscious thought. And it, and it also assumes that one, we have the skill to do that. And that our client who's not a professional, like movement educator has the skill to do that. And also that we as an instructor can, can like, it's like, we're supposed to be an MRI machine. Like we're supposed to be able to see the muscles, you know, and it's, it's, um, so with that, it's this assumption that we're moving like inefficiently or we're moving in, in correctly in an unproductive way. But when you, when you try to consciously override your, your motor planning, that's actually how you create movement inefficiency. So we end up using more energy to achieve the same task, which is like the definition of inefficiency. So we have good intentions. They like none of this is like ill intent. Like we're intending to do really well, but we end up doing the opposite of what we intend to do when we try to consciously override this mm. gripping situation. I've heard I've heard that one, you know, like holding tension in an unproductive way or you know words to that effect. I've also heard like um and I asked my Instagram uh stratosphere a couple of weeks ago this question no you've asked you've asked this on instagram or, or somewhere i saw you ask this where did i see you ask this recently 
Um, I asked this in a, in a Facebook group. Uh, people are oh, awesome right. to participate. I really appreciate it, um, as well as Instagram. Yeah. So I asked my Instagram followers this a couple of weeks back, and um, a couple of answers I got were not useful engaging, but squeezing to the point of disengaging other parts, um, over-recruiting a muscle in a way that's not functional, uh, a muscle that won't eccentrically lengthen, and then paradoxically contracting a muscle concentrically without needing it, needing to and without releasing it. Um, consciously contracting it without any task. A hyper, so that's like consciously contracting a hypertonic muscle. So that's unconsciously contracting it. So it's like some combination of uh, holding tension in an unproductive way, consciously contracting it, unconsciously contracting it, contracting it in not in to the point of disengaging other parts, over recruiting in a way that's not functional, a muscle that won't eccentrically lengthen, or a muscle that concentrically contracts without needing to and without releasing it. I'm confused. I think everyone is. <laughs> I think I think everyone everyone's confused. Even those of us who think we're clear are actually confused because we're using this one word, gripping, to mean all of these different and uh, mutually exclusive things. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like we're trying to create... I think we're trying to explain a sensory experience through biomechanical reasoning. Um, so like maybe you feel your hip flexors cause they're tired. Kind of like, you know, if you do like bicep curls for long enough, they'll get tired and then you'll feel your biceps. But the way you get them stronger is you do, do more bicep curls. Right. And I thought, right. So I think there are, apart from those paradoxical, you know, definitions that are in many cases mutually exclusive. I think there are there are a few layers, like you say, of, I think, illogical assumptions or unfounded assumptions in, you know, buried or stacked. The foundation of the concept of gripping is, is it's turtles all the way down. It's, it's based on things that don't actually hold up to scrutiny. Uh, the first one is, like you say, that where it's supposed to be an MRI machine and be able to see what's happening inside the body. It's like, okay, well, how do we act like, all right, so just even say we we even could agree on what gripping means, right? Let's just say gripping is like some version of overactivating a muscle, right? Well, how do we know if it's overactivating? It's like, okay, is it because somebody's experienced a sensation of activation in that muscle? Okay, well, how do we know that's because the muscle is overactive or how do we know it's not just because the person has a particularly acute ability to detect that sensation? What if it's actually underactive? <laughs> right. So, you know, the assumption is that the perception of activation is the same thing as activation. You know, if I perceive it a lot, that means it must be activating a lot. And if I don't perceive it, that most means it must means it must not be activating. And I think that that assumption is you know, demonstrably false. I mean, there are people in all of our acquaintance who have varying degrees of sensitivity sensitivity in varying senses. There are some people that can tell which side of the the mountain the coffee beans were grown on, right? And there are some people that can't tell the difference between you know, instant coffee and pour over, you know, 
Um, there, there are some people that can, you know, detect the difference between a, a high C on the piano that's a, 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 a 16th tone sharp, you know, and other people that can't tell the difference between a, you know, C major and a C minor chord, you know. Um, and that's, you know, if you can't hear it, that it's sharp or whether it's a C major or C minor, it doesn't change the reality of whether it's sharp or not. It's just a matter of perception. And the same must hold true in our bodily perception. Some of us are more just acutely aware of our bodily, you know, processes than others. Yeah, 100%. And, and like, well, what if we pretend that, like, they are overactive and your solution, they're trying to compensate for your abdominals because we're not working those enough. Just just pretend. This is where it's helpful to have like that idea of understanding your anatomy and understanding your physiology. And so the abdominals at the pelvis or at the lumbar spine Right, we're going to create some some flexion of the spine, okay? but the hip flexors don't create flexion of the spine; they create hip flexion. So, if your abdominals are not strong enough to do their job of flexion of the spine, you wouldn't compensate with a hip flexor because that's not going to help you flex your spine. That's going to help you flex your hip. It, you would recruit another hip flexor or some, or you would create another strategy. I'm sorry. You would create another strategy for spinal flexion. Um, so if you're going to activate, if you're going to activate your hip flexors more, what would actually happen is that you would flex your hips more. So you would, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense when, when we talk about like, Oh, the, the abs aren't working hard enough. So they're going to get work. They're going to get help from hip flexors. Right. It, it's totally nonsensical. When you think about the anatomy, that the abdominals, whether it's the rectus abdominis, the, the transversus, the internal external obliques, they all insert in some shape or form into the inguinal ligament, which goes from the ASIS to the symphysis pubis, or the you know the 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 the, the anterior part of the iliac crest, but just above the ASIS or to the symphysis pubis itself. So basically they insert into the front of the pelvis, you know, the, and they pull all of them, except for the transversus, really, um, which doesn't have a, uh, an action, doesn't really change the, the position of the pelvis as such. Uh, but for all of the other abdominals, they pull upwards on the front of the pelvis. You know, they pull the pelvis towards a posterior tilt. Whereas the hip flexors, with the exception of the psoas, all insert on the on the pelvis and pull the front of the pelvis downwards. Right, so they have the precisely opposite action on the pelvis to the abdominals. So, if you and I were in a tug of war, Adam, and I was pulling the rope, you know, towards me, and you were pulling it in the opposite direction towards you, and I was not pulling hard enough, and you pulled harder to compensate the rope would not move towards me. It would move towards you. <laughs> right. And even with the iliopsoas, right? Even if it was like, no, but it's the psoas, right? It's that one. That's the one that's overactive or something. Yeah. So it's unproductive. If the leg were to... So, so a muscle is going to pull its attachment points closer, closer to each other. 
So you just need to know where the attachment points are and you're going to know that the action of that muscle is going to be to pull those attachment points. So the, the iliopsoas is going to attach to the lumbar spine and the, um, the femur, like the proximal aspect of the femur. So you're going to pull the lumbar spine closer to the femur, but it's actually going to pull it into extension. If it were, if we were to move the spine with the psoas, but the psoas is mostly going to move the leg closer to the spine. So you're either going to get hip flexion, or if it were somehow to move the spine, it would actually move into extension. Right. Because it's not going to move the thoracic, and so the thoracic's going to get left behind. Yeah, figuratively. And if you're in something like a tabletop position, which is where most people experience the sensation of gripping, like most people in my experience teaching Pilates and also doing it, I've, I've experienced a sensation of unpleasant, you know, work in my hip flexors on, in tabletop plenty of times. Uh, but that's, for most people, that's alleviated by straightening the legs. Right? Now, straightening the legs actually makes it more work because you're lengthening your lever, right? But the muscles in a, a presumably a less shortened position, right? So there's there's a different sensation, but it's not actually reducing the amount of work. Uh, but anyway, in my experience, most people most people perceive this sensation that they call gripping when they're in tabletop, which is where the leg is bent at the knee, and you're lying on your back, and so regardless of how long or heavy your legs actually are relative to your torso, when the leg is bent like that, it's a shorter lever relative to the torso. So actually, the torso has more inertia than the leg in that position, right? So like you're saying, Adam, if the psoas contracts, because the psoas runs from the femur to the lumbar spine, it's going to, it, all it does is going to pull the lumbar spine and the femur closer together. But if the lumbar spine is attached to your torso, which is horizontal, Whereas at the other end, attached to your femur, which is vertical and has almost no uh, moment arm there to pull the, the torso up, absolutely the leg is going to move towards the torso rather than the torso moving towards the leg. So it's just not it's not biomechanically um, feasible that in a tabletop position, if the psoas, quote, over-contracts, it's going to extend your or flex or anything, do anything to your lumbar spine, because all it would do would be pull the femur in towards the torso. Yeah, and also if you're, if you're, if the overall um, idea is that your abdominals are not able to handle the load, right? So therefore we're outsourcing it to the hip flexors, back to that claim. And if you extend your legs forward, you have more load on the abdominals. So that would actually, that would not alleviate the pain. You're exacerbating the problem. You just put more load on the part that can't handle less load. So you would actually have more discomfort in that position. Or you would notice that like when straightening the legs, the exercise would fall apart because you'd fall over kind of thing. So it's it's just that. And also with the hip flexors, when you're straightening the legs, they're more horizontal. So they're actually working harder there. If anything, that's going to make the pain feel worse. Um, so it's a little bit, so when, that's where it's important to understand like the biomechanics, just something as simple as like levers or a moment arm. And then understanding your anatomy just lets you create that picture in your mind and realize that there's there's something that doesn't add up here. But then we still have that, that doesn't mean that the sensation is fake, 
right? Because you're having like a real experience mm. where you're. Hey, Adam, I'm, I'm sorry. I just I just want to pause you there for a second. Yeah. Can we can can we bookmark that idea about the experience? But yeah. just before we move on to that, I want to just uh, unpack moment arm uh, a little bit, um, and it, all it means is that the the you know, and we all know this intuitively that the further away you hold a load from your body, the the more force it exerts at the joint. So, for example, if you're holding, say, a you know a a, a one kilo, you know, two point two pound hand weight in your hand, you hold it right up next to your shoulder it's virtually weightless, right? But if you hold it at arm's length, it becomes heavier, right? Imagine it's a 10 kilo weight, right? You can probably hold that right on your chest fairly easily, but if you hold it at arm's length, it becomes much, quote, heavier. And of course, it still weighs 10 kilos. The pull of gravity on that object is still the same. But the, 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 um, the torque, which is a rotational force, like how much no, turning force is at the joint, is proportionate to the square of the distance. So, or it's the, it's the, it's, sorry, it's not the square of the distance, it's the product of the distance times the mass. So the, 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 if that 10 kilo weight is, you know, twice as far away, it essentially exerts twice as much force on your shoulder joint, right? And we all know this, you know, intuitively, and that's why when you're, on a seesaw with a young child, you sit close to the centre and the young child sits at the end and you're still heavier <laughs> most of the time. Um, uh, and so what that means is when you're lying on your back with your knees bent, your legs are short, so that the horizontal distance between the femur and the origin of the muscle, the psoas in this case, is very short. But as you lengthen out the leg, the load at the end of the leg gets further and further away from the origin of the muscle in, a horizo in the horizontal plane and so the, the leg sort of effectively weighs more. It exerts more force on the hip joint, on the abdominals, on the hip flexors. So uh, in a very real and biomechanically quantifiable way, the load is you know, significantly increased on the hip flexors and the abs when you straighten your legs out compared to when you bend them, even though when you straighten your legs out, for most people, it actually feels easier, like in terms of less, quote, gripping sensations. Yeah, in two ways that I, that I come to mind to translate this into like Pilates speak. So if torque makes your eyes go googly eyed and we're talking math, like this is why putting the strap on your elbow feels better than putting the strap on your hand. Like that's why it's easier because because you would be having it would be coming closer to your shoulder. If you're doing like hands and like arm circles or something like that, kneeling on, on the bed, you went from hand and strap to hand and elbow. And in a way to like exemplify this, if you're like, hmm, I don't quite understand, is go put ankle weights on. Grab like the heaviest ankle weights you can find, lay on your back and do the same movement. And then you'll notice how much more work is on your hip flexors when you straighten your legs, because that'll likely bring you on, bring you beyond capacity of, of comfort. If you've never done the repertoire in ankle weights, oh, I've done it by accident. I recommend it. So, all right, let's move on. What were you about to say about the sensation and the perception of sensation? Yeah, so the sen so all of this talk doesn't mean that what you're experiencing is not real. What this is trying to highlight and to kind of crack open is like your, your experience or the sensation of discomfort in your hip flexors in said movement is correct. It is, it's, it's, it's real. 
But the reason why it's happening may not be the re- may not be what we're thinking, nor is the solution. Because if the problem isn't real, then there's no solution to the ma- to the problem that doesn't exist, right? However, we're still having this. They could, it doesn't actually solve the problem of discomfort in the hips, because it would be nice to like be in tabletop and like not be in discomfort, right? Um, and so that's where I was going with that, where it's like just validating, like it it is true and maybe there's a different solution and that solution may be different from person to person. Um, one thing that I would just immediately go for is maybe like strengthen the hips. Like I just put freaking ankle weights on that person or like put a kettlebell on their foot. Um, that's what I would go for is, is maybe this is just an indicator of like a place that, that this, the individual with that sensory experience can grow from in a way that they can get stronger. So essentially load the action. Isn't it funny how that would be like super obvious if it was the abs, right? So if I'm in your class and we're doing tabletop and I'm like, Adam, my abs are really like burning in this movement. Would you be like, oh no, what should we do with it? <laughs> you would be like, oh, that's because you've, as you get stronger, that will that sensation will reduce, right? Yeah, I just I just think like um, exercising muscles is good and it's healthy regardless of where that muscle is on your body. And we can also like this conversation can be just as easily built around the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can you say the same thing about like the sternocleidomastoid of the neck. You know, it's in that that's just like a massive massive muscle uh, around your neck. Um, where it's like you can't lift your head, you're not going to lift your head up without it. You're not going to relax it, but sometimes it gets sensitive, right? And that sensory experience is is true and it's real, but maybe practice picking your head up more often or strengthen mm. your neck. And and with that, it doesn't, and, and I would even uh, be curious on your take on this, um, but we know that if we're a pain, that you don't, you can do strength training and reduce your pain experience, even if you don't get stronger. So sometimes it's just exposure. Can you just expose the body part to the imposed demands? Even if it doesn't get stronger, you may have a reduction in a pain experience or a sensory experience just simply because you're used to it. And you could probably apply that to like um, any Pilates exercise you've ever done. The first time you did it, holy shit, new muscles, right? Never used these before. And now, maybe 5, 10, 15 years later, even if you get tired by the end, you're having a different sensory experience because your body's done this before or it's, it's, it's been exposed to these demands. Um, yeah. I've actually uh, experienced that myself quite recently that um, I'm just chronically inflexible and I'd, I'd, even when I stretch a lot, I still like barely improve my flexibility. Like... My current stretching routine, I spend about an hour a day stretching. I still struggle to touch my toes. Like, it's just, I just cannot get my flexible. Um, but, you know, I don't mind. I'm not you complaining. You got to release if, your ass. If I, if, I, uh, if I even walk past a weight, I get stronger, you know, so I, I'm not complaining. I think I've, I've lucked out in the genetic lottery. But um, it would be nice to be able to do the splits, but, you know, maybe maybe in the next lifetime. But anyway, so I sort of go with my flexibility training, I go through kind of like seasons where I like 
throw my hands up in the air and go, oh, fuck it, you know, like, why bother? Why, why stretch all, you know, it's like, if I spend an hour a day stretching six days a week to get, like, one inch closer to my toes, you know? <laughs> um, so then I just stop stretching. I'm like, who needs it anyway? Stupid. Um, and then after, after I, you know, maybe six, 12 months of not stretching, I'm like, gee, I feel stiff as a board. I really should do some stre- stretching. <laughs> so then I start stretching. And, of course, it's super painful. And every time I, like, even think about stretching, I just want to make noises like, oh, you know, <laughs> just like an, an old dog getting up out of a beanbag or something. And I feel, like, super stiff. And when I, when I jump on the reformer and do, say, like a front split, even like a super gentle one with my hands on the – on the on the foot bar and you know easy springs and all of that it's like it's just unpleasant not fun it, there's no there's no gentle enough way that I can do it that it feels nice it just feels unpleasant right but then after I do it for a, maybe 5 or 6 weeks regularly it starts to feel nice you know and I've 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 been stretching again in this latest in you know latest go around the the merry go round been stretching about six weeks and I'm just hitting that point where it's like, oh, I'm starting to look forward to my stretching session every day rather than going, oh, do I have to stretch again? And, and it's funny how you say that because the, the, like, I'm very strong and, you know, I can hamstring curl, you know, my body weight and, but I, so it's, so it's not a strength issue. It's just, I'm not used to the movement and, and but just doing it, even though I, I, I'm not even sure if I've improved my flexibility even one inch, you know, <laughs> it it feels starts to feel nice, and I start to look forward to that experience. Yeah, it's kind of like like if we were to parallel this with stretching, it's kind of like telling you that you're wrong for feeling the stretch because you're stretching, meaning that you you're having that sensory experience because you are putting mechanical tension onto the muscle. It's like, how dare you feel that? So then like, how dare you feel your hip flexors contracting when you're creating hip flexion, right? It's just, it's, it's their job and it's a natural, it's a natural, um, you know, experience. And this is also like, but you're also like a fearless mover stretching. So you, so you, you know your shit when it comes behind stretching and, and for our clients who they rely on us for information you know, a lot of them rely on us for information. They, they come in and they, they believe our, you know, the Pilates instructor and we have a duty of care to provide the most accurate information possible. And so that's where it's like the conversation that we have when our clients say, hey, I feel this in my hip flexors. That conversation is more important than their, their current experience because you're, you're putting down beliefs into their sensory experience, which also goes into the definition of pain, which is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience, right? That's the short definition. Um, so, so with that, like, that's why these conversations are important. So it's not saying like, Ooh, I'm doing it wrong. I'm a fraud, yada, yada. No, it's like, how can we grow and how can we have a better conversation with our clients and, and encourage them to do more movement. And in order to do more movement, you should have a positive relationship with as many movement options, with as many movements as possible. And through that, you generate more movement options. And if you can create more movement options for people and get them moving more, you deserve a raise. I'd like to hear your version on... Uh you know, addressing the emotional part of that sensory and emotional experience and how if we, 
we might not even change the sensory experience, but it still might be less painful. Yeah. So this is a this is a good one. I actually um, saw something recently um, on this where there's this idea that because we're Pilates instructors and we know that pain has a sensory and emotional experience that the emotional part is outside of our scope of practice. However, we're also not biomechanists and we feel that we can talk about biomechanics and work with biomechanics all that we want. So why are biomechanics like out, like not outside your scope of practice? So you're not a, like 99% of Pilates instructors are not biomechanists, but that's in our scope of practice. So anytime you are, anytime you are working with someone, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you are having an emotional impact on them. And it, it's, it's not a choice. It's going to happen. You're not diagnosing anyone's emotions. You are not directly treating a diagnosis that they may already have. But you're also not doing that with the body part either. You're not diagnosing osteoarthritis right so when we're when we're when we're working with a human we're always working with an emotional aspect and that's where there's the 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 art of delivering our our work of pilates uh, exercises in that the words that you use and how and and how you perceive your clients movements and express that to them is more valuable than the exercise selection that you actually choose. Because clients will generate movement beliefs based on feedback that you provide them. So if we, provide, if we tell them in um, one way or 99 ways that they shouldn't feel the hip flexors, one, they're going to be thinking about their hip flexors more. And then two, they're going to feel more stuff in their hip flexors because they're thinking about it. And then they're going to have a negative uh, association with that. And neurons that, there's a saying in like neuroscience, like neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So if you, if you have a negative experience with a body part or a feeling and you feel that again, you're going to have that negative experience again, real or imagined. Like if you ever had like a spider, like on, like you think that you like you go through a spider web on like your shoulder and then all of a sudden you feel like, like the air touches your shoulder or maybe it's just me and like you you freak out right because like spider i have a fear of spiders therefore negative association with sensation at this time however we can also what's nice about this is that pain's conditional right and beliefs are conditional and so we can also do the complete opposite of that and that's where we we like learn to break down the science, but this is raising it to an art in which you can, just the words that you use, you can just teach the repertoire or the same exercises as the instructor next to you or down the street, but you can have a completely different impact on someone because of the words that you use and how you choose to empower um, your, your client's movement experience. So, oh, I feel my neck during this exercise. Oh, that's awesome, right? Like, I don't like it. I'm like, okay, no worries. That's a great, great information. Now we know, now we know that we could get your neck stronger, right? So it's, so it's just, it's, we call it Pilates Jiu-Jitsu in the diploma. It's like you either win or like we just, we just talk to them in like a win-win situation. So when your clients leave the studio, they leave as a winner. 
right? They're doing it right. They're winning. And if, and if you get your clients to win, one, it's really good for your business because they're going to come back. And it's also really good for your clients because they're going to move more and they're going to have more moving options. So, that, I mean, that's where I'd go with that. Yeah. And I love what Anula Myberg calls it. Your, your neck, great. That's your neck abs working. You know? Yeah. All of a sudden we like them. Right. Yeah. 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 And, hip, and so hip just abs. taking away the threat value or the perceived threat value of that, of that sensory experience can leave sometimes a sensory experience unchanged, but the emotional component is suddenly, you know, reframed to being like, oh, that's that's what it, this is the that's the sensation of getting stronger. You know, it's not a sensation of of danger. Um, I want to uh, move now to, you know, another one of those turtles that uh, on which the notion of gripping is precariously balanced. Um, which is the notion of it's, you know, all of these definitions that we talked about at the start are sort of like it. They all uh, sort of common, they all uh, share in common the idea that a muscle's overactivating, whether it's concentrically, eccentrically, you know, consciously, unconsciously, you know, etc. But so the, the idea of overactivating, you know, implicit within that is the is the concept that there is a correct level of activation, and that that's the same for everyone, in in every situation. You know, like if we're flexing the hips at under a certain load, you know, there's a correct level of activation. A different load, there's a correct level of activation or order of recruitment of muscles or whatever, and that's so in movement. You know, movement X. You know, your glutes should be working at this percentage, your abs should be working at that percentage, and your hip flexors should be working at this other percentage, right? Um, yeah. So, like, yeah. What are, What are some of the What are some What are some Some of the gaping holes in that concept? <laughs> um, it's like how complicated can we make a simple thing? Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like, let's, let's, it's almost like you were like, you had to give like an hour lecture, but you only have five minutes of material. So you're just trying to stretch it out, right? Like, it's like, you know, you don't have to, but they paid you for an hour, right? So it's, so it's just like it, I mean, that's, that's, that's where I'd go with that. So first, first of all, it assumes that like, you know how to isolate and, and consciously contract specific muscles and not other muscles around it, right? And then it also assumes that your client knows how to do that. And then it assumes that you can see that your client is doing that. And, and I think what, where this gets kind of caught up is like we, we say that and then our clients believe us, so they have a sensory experience, then then we tell them that they're doing it right, and then we agree. And we we confuse a mutual agreement between two opinions with with objective information. So I don't have the ability to measure someone's uh, muscle activation with my eyes or with my hands. I can't tell you when you're 30% activated but i can pretend and i can be really confident when i say it but that doesn't make uh, me and you might not be pretending you might be you might genuinely believe that oh yeah can sorry i'm yeah. That. oh yeah no i've i mean in this happens at every level 
of education. I'm going to do a sidebar real quick. And this happens at every level of education. This isn't just Pilates. Okay. Like I'm in physio school and I've had physio professor claim to feel the difference between two millimeters and five millimeters in the SI joint with a test that's not clinically valid. And we know, we know, um, and we have validity studies saying, showing that experienced manual therapists are accurate to within 15 millimeters, you know, in their palpation of the SI joint. (laughs) It, it, and we were, and we were also the same class had the study that said the test doesn't work. So, and, but then there was like this confidence. So, so now you have confidence, and you have authority with people that are paying like U.S. dollars, you know, however much you, you know. I won't. Anyways, anyone in the academia system here, we know it's like a, too much money. And so I just I use that as an example because that's supposed to be like the highest level of education, and we're still there's still these holes, gaping holes, and fallacies. So we don't ever have to feel bad of like, damn it, my education was not good enough. Because like, if you go higher, you just find different versions of the same shit. You just pay more for the same misinformation. Yeah, yeah, and then you get like a now this paper, you know, says something different on it. Um, but that's why conversations like this are really important. So then we talk about the logic behind it, and we can we can just get a better um, understanding of it and be able mm. to have better conversations with our clients. So like. And, and when you step out of it, you end up having less responsibility and less things to handle. So you end up having an easier job because you don't have to worry about if your clients like rectus femoris is firing uh, 50%. If you wanted to get the rectus femoris to fire, you just realize that it does hip flexion and it does knee extension. So you just do exercises that involve hip flexion and knee extension and then you apply progressive loading to it and like like it, it, it is that simple and so so that's that's one thing that i've really learned is like the higher i get up in in like education or the more understanding i get of concepts the the more simple my treatments are when i started uh, and i started to learn these things uh like 14 years ago first pilates school everything was really complicated and then I just learned more complicated procedures. And then it just continues to get more simple and more simple. So anyone listening to this saying, thinking like, I need more education to understand, to like learn the complicated protocols. It's not the way it works. You, 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 you end up doing a lot of shedding of the complicated stuff. And that's why it's important to learn concepts like the pain science, the motor learning, the strength training, and then apply that to exercises you already know. And you end up having more energy, less anxiety. Uh, you know, you just end up enjoying your job more. That was my experience as well. A lot of shedding. I, I actually went to university to study exercise science for that reason. I wanted to understand. I couldn't understand all the complexity. I was being explained, oh, the SI joint is, you know, dysfunctional. Therefore, the shoulder hurts. Um, and I, I just couldn't understand you know, the chain of logic. And I thought there was a deficiency on my part. But then as I learned more and more, I realized, actually, no, it just doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> you, don't, you didn't memorize the trigger point? <laughs> yeah, I've memorized a lot of trigger points. Gladly, I've forgotten most of them now. But um, uh, I, I also want to touch on that, on a concept of, um, you know, the, 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 the turtle, I'm going to call it, or the, the, the let's call it the elephant. <laughs> we could change the name of this show to Pilates Turtles. Yeah, uh, let's talk about the elephant of the idea of normal activation. And 
I want to uh, sort of just touch on the or, or talk through the the evidence that we have. Or like when I was in Pilates school, I was taught that you know the it's saying the one of the things I did in my stop Pilates injuries in special populations training was the what I now know is the yonder prone hip extension test, where you are basically testing for you know quote glute activation. And you so you lie the, the client on their tummy and you put and, and you ask them to lift one leg and you're looking or palpating if you like really slick uh, for the order of firing between their low back, their glutes, and their hamstrings. And they're even if you like again super like advanced, you look at their upper traps and go, ha, huh, your upper traps went before your glutes or whatever. So then, and you know, sometimes you might put one hand on their lower back and the other hand on their hamstrings, or one hand on their butt, the other hand on their hamstrings, one hand on their upper traps, other hand on their low back, or whatever. And so you think like, okay, now your glutes should fire first. I was taught it should, you know, the correct order. I remember, I don't remember exactly what the correct order was, but I remember there was a clearly a labelled diagram with like a one, two, three, four of you know this muscle should fire first, this muscle should fire second, and it was always the glutes was number one, and I think it was like the opposite side low back was number two. And then the hamstrings was number three or you know, something like that, right? It was something like that. This is the proper order, right? Um, and, you know, that it made sense to me the way it was explained. Um, and an awful lot of people had it wrong, though. Like they had their, their hamstrings were firing before their glutes. And like, oh, no wonder you've got back pain because your hamstrings are firing before your glutes. But then, um, you know, you and I both, Adam, were exposed to this uh, study from... BMC muscle uh, musculoskeletal disorders from 2004 by Greg Greg Lehman, uh, where they actually looked at this test and they got 14 pain-free people to do this test and they put actually electromyographs like um, surface EMG electrodes on these people's glutes and hamstrings and low back and whatever. And they found it was uh, there was high variability between uh, there was no single like pattern right. There was just very a lot of variability between which muscle fired first in each person. But the only pattern they did find was that in everybody, glutes consistently fired last. Right? So like <laughs> so the, op- ex- the opposite of what... The opposite. <laughs> did you call everyone that you ever treated and apologize to them? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry. I told you to Did we reverse it now? Because we fixed you and now we have to... Un- got to... Well, I, I, here's the irony. I mean, I spent the first, I don't know, four or five years of teaching Pilates literally training my clients to grip their glutes and abs. You know, now I didn't call it gripping. I called it, you know, recruiting or activating or, you know, whatever. But I was telling them, effectively, I was telling them to squeeze their transversus and squeeze consciously squeeze their glutes before movement every time they moved their hip. How's that different to gripping? You know, I, I literally trained people to grip for years. And at, at what age do you have to start doing that? Like they don't teach that in grade school, right? Like, at, at, like it's when's the starting technique, point? Mate. An advanced technique. <laughs> so like, it's, my bad parent. I haven't. I haven't. My daughter's thirteen. I haven't told her to do that. Um, but but again, it's done with like good intention. And if you talk, if we if we talk with like biomechanics brain, it like it makes sense. But like. You know, in this study, they they also they, well they found that that the glutes fired last, but then the hamstrings and the erector the spinae couldn't couldn't they couldn't make up their minds. Right, there's no single pattern. 
So, which was, uh, you know, just the variability of human movement, which again mm -hmm. is like, oh, so I don't have to worry about, yes, they, you don't have to worry about that. Like just sh shed it, right? right? Just, you know, maybe work on getting the leg higher or I don't, I don't, why do we do prone hip extension? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know why we do it. I think it's, it's convenient maybe, you know, um, yeah, I mean, and there, there's other research that we've, you know, the idea also, I think that, um, you know, a prone hip extension or any movement is is like um, just a single entity, I think also turns out to be flawed. So we've got study, again, EMG studies in squatting and in bench pressing. Uh, I think we've got them in uh, Nordic hamstring curls as well, where we basically measure the muscle recruitment uh, the onset, so like the the, 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 on, the timing order of the muscles and also the, the magnitude, so how much each muscle is recruited relative to the other muscles in the movement and at different loads and at different depths in terms of the squat, you know, how deep you go or whatever. And what we find is that um, in the squat, for example, your quads are maximally recruited, uh, and I can't remember the exact number, I'll try and dig out the, the, the paper and put it in the show notes, but it was something like like 25 or 30% of your 1RM, of your maximum, right? So by the time you, you – if you if you know, at, at a weight that you can do like 40 reps of, right, your quads are already recruited maximally, but your glutes are barely on. And as you add more and more and more and more load, your quads stay at maximal activation, but your glutes just work more and more and more and more and more. So – by the time you're very close to your maximum, you know, say a load that you can only do like five reps of or something, then your glutes are working maximally and your quads are working maximally. All right, so to, to ask like what is the correct muscle activation in a squat is a kind of a meaningless question because it's like, well, how much, how, how heavy is the load in the squat? You know, and, and the other thing is that muscle recruitment is joint angle specific. So we find, an, again, in the squat literature, and I, I don't have the study in front of me. I'll try and dig it out um, before the, you know, before this goes to air and put it in the show notes. We look at glute recruitment in, say, a quarter squat versus a half squat versus an astagrass squat, right? And we find that basically the deeper you go, the more your glutes work, right? Which, you know, intuitively kind of makes sense. Right, because glutes are hip extensor, and the more you flex your hip, the more that you stretch them, and therefore the more you know, pre-stretch they have. So, but it's like, all right. So, if, if if the question is like, how much should your glutes activate in a squat? Well, it's like, well, how much load, and what's the joint angle, right? And in, until I have those pieces of information, I can't even make a, a guess as to how much <laughs> your glutes should activate. But that requires understanding um, strength training principles of biomechanics. Right, which is like why like learning those those principles is important. And in one way that that like I start to think about that in terms of Pilates would be um, like footwork, right? Like the squeeze your glutes before you do footwork. Well, maybe footwork isn't a good glute exercise. Be, like maybe we don't have to consciously contract it there, but but maybe um footwork like like maybe we don't get enough hip flexion or maybe we don't have enough springs on uh for for that right right in, because in, when you're in because in footwork for most people you know if you've kind of got average you know strength as an adult 
doing footwork on three springs, most people can do 30, 40, 50 reps, right? So you're at close to that, like 30% of one RM load. So your quads are probably working maximally, but your glutes are probably like barely even on just just because of the load. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things of like, maybe it's not that our body is moving wrong, but maybe it's our understanding of human movement that needs a little bit more refining. And that's not a, a jab at anyone. It's a way of like ins- inspiring to like, whoa, like there's so much more to learn. Um, and, and there's so much to grow from in, in that we don't, in, in the more we learn, the more we learn, we don't have to override these processes. Like just put another spring on it. Or maybe just like, like what I just do, if I want to get someone's glutes on, like in a footworky position, I sit them up. And I have and I have them do a one legged squat on a really low reformer if they can, you know. Meaning, I just load it more, load it more, load it more, <laughs> and this, go deeper. Yeah, <laughs> that's, those two, those two things pretty much always get you out of trouble. <laughs> and you can you can use a hundred percent or fifty percent muscle activation, whatever you whatever you need to do to move the load. Right, you're fine. Um, all right, so I think so. We've talked about the many different definitions of gripping. We've talked about hip flexors can't compensate for abs because they hip flexors pull the front of the pelvis down, abs pull the front of the pelvis up. We've talked about just because you can feel it doesn't mean that's the same thing as reality. So just because you feel an uncomfortable sensation, the uncomfortable sensation is real, doesn't mean that indicates muscles being overactive or underactive or any other kind of active. And that, it, you know, just uh, by, from the biomechanical plausibility, when we talked about lever arms, when you straighten out your legs, for example, there's definitely objectively more load on the hip flexors. And yet, for most people, the sensation of gripping disappears <laughs> when we do that. <laughs> So, yeah, how does that work? Um, and paradoxically, there's more load on the abs when you straighten your legs out as well. And yet, if the abs are under active or weak and the hip flexors are compensating, well, when you put more load on the abs, why does the sensation of gripping go? You know, it just doesn't make sense. We talked about, uh, you know, the idea that there's such a thing as normal activation of a muscle and that uh, different people have different muscle recruitment firing orders in the same position, that these are pain-free people. Uh, and we find that, and moreover, we find that in other muscles as well. This wasn't just one study on 14 people. Like, if we look at, like, the vast literature on, say, transversus abdominis recruitment, right, there's probably a couple of hundred papers that have investigated the timing of transverse abdominis recruitment with various, you know, moving your arm or moving your leg or whatever it might be. And we find invariably in every single study, when we look at pain-free people, there's a range of, you know, timing, right? There's some people comes on early, some people comes on late, some people comes on before the deltoid, some people it comes on after the deltoid, and there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. And even when we look at people with back pain, that same range still applies. Some people with back pain, the transversus fires late. Other people with back pain, the transversus fires early. You know, so there's, there's definitely a variation and we see that in you know other muscles as well. And I'll, I'll see if I can dig up a hamstring paper that I've got in mind 
that when we look at people doing hamstring curls, we see different recruitment patterns in the same movement, in the same range of motion, just between different people. And that kind of makes sense. Like if you and if you and I, Adam, are doing the same exercise, say we're both doing a, a, a hamstring curl, but say you're relative to your torso length, your femurs are longer than mine, right? Or say maybe your, uh, you know, rec- your biceps femoris has relatively more fast twitch fibers compared to your semitendinosus compared to mine, right? It's like, well, why would they fire exactly the same? You know, it just doesn't make sense that they would be the same. And, and one thing I would add to that is um, I, I, would, I haven't read every study of that, but the ones that I have read, uh, none of them measured muscle activation with someone's vision. No, right. so, not a thing. <laughs> which is like we're not even like when we actually use the technology that's like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to do in a freaking university lab. That's um, not even like we can't even replicate it. You know, like so it's just like let's take the pressure off ourselves. Like we don't have to go there. Um, you know, meaning like why are we working that hard for something that doesn't exist? It's um. I mean, there's a, there's another paper by Greg Lehman, I know you're aware of it, where they um, put um, uh, inclinometers on people's sacrum, one on the sacrum, one on the T12L1, you know, the, the thoracolumbar junction, and measured the alignment, basically measured whether they're in a neutral pelvis or not. And they got people to squat and they told them to maintain a neutral pelvis. And then uh, they looked at observe they got observers to look at that and and say when they thought they were neutral and when they thought they were not neutral and basically the observers couldn't detect it below i can't remember what it was like 30 or 40 degrees was the the minimum you know they could detect right so if if you flex less than 30 degrees no one could tell the difference and that's bony movement that's a lot easier to see than like the activation of like your free and glute medius right 30 degrees 30 degrees is just massive. It's like, Think you know, about 45. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, just, like, let that be your point of relevance. That's why the CDC recommends to do, like, when you're doing, like, posture stuff, you're just supposed to do it in 30-degree increments. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, so we, we, I mean the human so race we, is bad at this. Like, not, like, Jessica and Joanne and Fred. It's like, no, it's the human race is just bad at it or inaccurate, and, and that's okay. That's why we have technology. Um, so yeah, we talked about all that. And then finally we talked about muscle recruitment being load specific and joint angle specific. So there is, there is really, you know, it's not true that there is a correct or normal order or proportion of muscle recruitment in a given movement, right? It's not possible to say, oh, in tabletop, your hip flexors should be firing this percentage and your abs should be firing that percentage. It's just not, it doesn't, that, that's not a true statement. Yeah, it's not a true statement. And even if it was true, we couldn't confirm it. Right. And just because you're feeling something in your hip flexors, that has probably almost zero correlation between how hard your hip flexors are actually actually working relative yeah. to your abs. I mean, I, I'd rather feel them than not feel them. Like if I, if I had no sensation around my hips, I think I'd, that'd be a bigger problem than if I felt my hips. So it's more of like having a positive association with your body 
right? And and not discriminating against certain like bones and muscles of your own of, your, of yourself. Like just like I don't know, just accept yourself. Like you know, and and your hip flexors are part of yourself. So go accept your hip flexors. It's like I remember when I was a kid reading when my sister had like I'm not sure if you had this in the US, but like Cosmopolitan magazine or basically the kind of the teenage girl magazines. Yeah. And um, it would be like I would be reading it and there would be like this, like they would talk about like your, what did they say, your imperfections or your trouble, your problem, your problem areas, right? And what they meant by that was like, oh, I, I carry too much weight on this particular body part or I've got a blemish on my skin on this particular, you know, your quote problem areas, right? Um, you know, which in the context of beauty, right, we would, I think most of us would think like, no, well, fuck that, you know, like, if, you know, people can be beautiful even if they've got a, a blemish on their skin or even if they've got, you know, some kind of a dimple in the back of their leg or whatever, you know, it's like we're, I don't think, I don't think many people would refer to those as a quote, oh, your problem, Adam, Adam you know, your problem area, <laughs> you know, now, but we, we do say that in Pilates still, I think, and we refer to, you know, your, pro, your problem is your left tensor fascia latte is overactive, you know, or your problem is your, your stenocleidomastoids grip too much, or your, over-trapped, your upper traps are overactive, you know. Well, that's a whole nother bag of worms. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and, and it's always, like, the same ones, right? Like, no one gets mad at the soleus, right? Like, the soleus is always, like, innocent. You're never, you're never overactive there or you don't need to consciously contract your calves and but we do get worried we do get worried about the soles and i've had maybe this is different you know back there maybe it's just something back in my day but i don't think so i used to have women say to me in my sessions oh i don't want to do calf raises because i don't want my calves to bulk up oh yeah i've had that with like triceps and stuff like that. i've been fired for getting someone stronger <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like getting fired because like someone's full after they go to a restaurant. I'm never coming back here. They're supposed to leave hungry. Um, just to finish up, I want to I want to talk about. I think you, you know. I just I want to talk about a little bit about what you what you just raised there because uh, I feel like we're kind of done with this grouping, right? Do you feel is there anything you want to add to this conversation before we before we no, finish up? No, I have nothing else to add there. Um, I guess I just want to, you know, I don't want to sort of start a whole other, you know, thread here, but I, I do just want to spend a minute contemplating that uh, fear that mostly women have, I think, about bulking up and wanting to use, you know, like I've had a lot of women in my sessions wanting to use light weights or light springs um, because they don't want to, quote, bulk up or wanting to avoid certain exercises altogether like you say, like tricep work, like calf work, um, like even like quad work. But they, the other areas we do, you know, when we're not afraid to, to work, like abs. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, we've talked about this in the good muscles, bad muscles, and the kind of nonsensical nature of like we think working the calves is going to make them too big, but we think working the abs is going to make our waist more slender. It's like, well, how does – how does that work, right? Does does working a muscle make it bigger or smaller? You know, pick one. Um, uh, so the, apart from the kind of the nonsensical nature of it, I think it's I, the reason I kind of am 
most, uh, I guess I'm most con- caused for, con- the, the reason I have most concern for this is because I, I think, um, you know, women often, in particular women, you know, it can happen to men too, but in particular women, you know, worry about, you know, quote, bulking up, and, but they want to, you know, often tone. And, you know, tone is a, in exercise science, as you know, it's not an actual term. I read it <laughs> so in Cosmopolitan. Right. It's, it's, it's basically a euphemism. I don't know if it's a euphemism. It's, 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 the, it's the positive spin word for getting strong, right, that, it's, that is socially acceptable as a, as a, you know, as a woman, right, or, you know, for some men as well. But I think it's mostly women. And whereas, you know, bulking up is the negative spin version of the same concept, right? That's if you're on the Romanian weightlifting team and you're taking steroids, you know, that's what that's what you do. You bulk up, right? Whereas <laughs> uh, nothing against Romania. Love, love, I've got some dear friends who are Romanians. Uh, none of them are weightlifters. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, I've, I observed something in my wife, Jules, uh, recently, she's been trying to get stronger, and she works out in the gym. She's not afraid of lifting heavy weights, um, and and so you know she'd been working out, but she hasn't been getting stronger. And she said to me like, oh, a few months ago, you know, like why aren't I getting stronger? Like I'm doing all the right sets and reps and everything like you told me to. And I said, it's because you're not eating enough, right? She so she's conscious. She's trying to get stronger at the same time. She's trying to lose weight, and those. Those goals are almost completely mutually exclusive because getting stronger involves building tissue. So it's an it's an anabolic process. That's what they say, building tissue. Whereas losing weight is you have to you're literally destroying tissue. You know, you're it's catabolic, right? So I think um, I guess you know where I've I've I get concerned is uh, I think you know people are trying to achieve opposite things with different parts of their fitness routine and which end up kind of cancelling out and not you know not achieving either goal yeah and, and i think it's also like it's really hard to like accidentally get ripped you know <laughs> like like it's not something that happens like it's like i don't want to like accidentally run a four mile like a four minute mile right right like it's like you have to train really hard for that and people that get ripped like like there's always a genetic factor like you mentioned it's a little bit easier for you it may be harder for others but it's not something that happens by accident or by overnight and as you mentioned there's a huge like nutritional component to it um you know but you make a really good point and that's that goes back to that understanding concepts of physiology and just understanding what uh, like anabolic and catabolic is you know, meaning that when you're trying to lose weight and also build muscle, it doesn't make sense. It's like turning the light. It's like like the light switch if you're hitting off, but you're pissed off that the lights are not on. They would right. just turn them off. And then you turn them on and you're like, why are they off? It's like, well, because you turned them on. I think there's also um, something in there about, uh, you know, and just normalizing like it's okay to be fucking awesome and strong you know as a woman like that's why does it have to be a bad look yeah just as a, as <laughs> as a human and like you can do like anything you want to do right and and so you have permission to get strong and like people that care about you will just cheer you on 
you know right um so I, so if i like you, having a wife that can squat her body weight that's awesome there you, you go know. yeah <laughs> um okay well uh this is this has been a good conversation and um i look forward i look forward to our next one thanks for coming right all our way over here from the evidence-based pilates podcast headquarters thank you Ralph. it was a pleasure see ya After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.